0: I know as we talk talking about fathers, sometimes you come to the Father's Day and we kind of praise our mothers and we kind of charge our dads on this day. And I've had people tell me that, that, listen, I don't want to, as a father, I don't want to go because I'm always beat down on how bad I am as a father. But the M- Mother's Day, it's always praise the mothers. And so we're not going to beat down dads today, okay? Promise you that. Uh, obviously, there's a challenge as a man to be a man, to man up and to be a man. And sometimes, though, I realize this even in my own upbringing, I struggle with what the concept of what a man was. Uh, just the example of a man. What was a man supposed to do? What's a husband supposed to do? I struggled with that in the paradigm that I lived under and maybe some of you. And so whenever we had boys and I have my soon-to-be uh, sister, uh, daughter-in-law, not sister-in-law, uh, daughter-in-law with us today, uh, as we uh, launched our two boys into this world, we tried to give them a clear, defined definition of what manhood was. And we did several things to clearly define that. Because again, I think in this world of gender neutrality, in this world of confused roles, in this world that we need to understand our role. And so, this was the definition that we used. You can use it for yourself. I still it I stole it from somebody else. But the art of originality is the ability to hide your source. And so, uh, this is not ours, but it became ours. Okay, an authentic man is a person who rejects passivity, accepts responsibility, leads courageously, and anticipates a greater reward. And And so that's our definition at the McDaniel household for what a man is. And I could break each one of those down into what they mean. But it's really important that I think we help our our boys, our teens, our future adults, our preteens, understand the direction that they're going. So that's where we're going to be going in the months ahead. But even today, when we talk about being filled with the Spirit and the, the fruit of the Spirit, and we've talked about love and joy and peace and patience and all those, today we're going to talk about one, that probably wouldn't have made your list. In fact, it's at the bottom of the list. It's number nine on the list. But we've got to understand that number nine is just as important, and you'll understand that in a moment, as number one. Because the motivation, this is what I heard about going to the gym, motivation will get you into the gym, but it will be discipline that will keep you in the gym. Motivation will say, hey, I need to lose weight. I need to go on a diet. I need to get, get, get better, better fit. That may get you started. How many New Year's resolutions have already started and I've already failed? And then, but what's going to keep us there? What's going to make the difference? It's going to be the disciplines, the daily disciplines of our life. Now here's a life principle for you. You can jot it down or just remember it. It's not long, so it should be difficult. That a spirit-filled life is a self-disciplined life. Now, that almost sounds humanistic and, at the same time, spiritual-focused, and it is because there is an us factor, there is a God factor. There is the God factor that that's one of the fruits of the Spirit, okay, self-control. But there's the self factor in that it's going to be us choosing to allow the Spirit to control us, making the right moves, taking the right steps, doing the right initiatives, for that to happen. And there's going to be some concrete decisions that we'll have to make some intentionality about us. But let's look at what we've been looking at now for, since Easter Sunday, we've been looking at this one passage of Scripture and kind of been teasing it out each, each week a little bit each time. Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. We should know it by now. You can use the cheat sheet, it's on, it's on the screen behind me. So you can use it if you need it. Otherwise, try to quote it with me, okay? But the fruit of the Spirit. Is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, gentleness. <laughs> See, I even messed it up. And against such, there is no law. Those last ones that kind of get, I, I get them mixed up from time to time. Kindness and goodness, faithfulness and gentleness. But don't let the bottom of the list get lost in the top of the list or get lost for. The emphasis in the top of the list. When we make list out, we typically go top to bottom, right? Priority list. One is one and two is two and three is three. And if you don't make it to four, that's fine as long as you did two and three and one. And that's kind of how we think in the Western mindset. I recently did a a, a Greek intensive relearning what I'd forgotten actually years gone by with Joey Dotson, a professor at Denver Seminary, formerly at Ouachita, and uh, he's been on our stage and taught many times. He gave a Greek intensive, and he actually pointed something out to me about Greek lists. They're not like our Western world list. We make top to bottom, one, two, three, priority order. Actually, this is incredible. Don't miss this. They don't list that way. They will put number one, maybe number one, but the last one on the list can be just as important as the first one on the list. So if you don't, if you're not careful, you might focus on the top of the list and try to knock those babies out, but forget number eight, nine, and 10, or or number seven, eight, nine, but it's actually their bookends to the whole. And you don't want to miss that. It's a beautiful understanding when you come to that. Because when you think about it, if you have love and you don't have self-control, what, what, what happens? Because when you think about love, what do you think of? You think about words like uh, feelings, uh, subjectivity, uh, gushy stuff comes out when we love, all right? Uh, grace comes with love. We think about love when we think about that. Self-control, what do you think about? You think about facts, objective Hard lines, truth. And the reality is, is you can't, the perfect balanced life is that list right there. And not taking away and saying, I'm going to focus on love, joy, and peace, but I'm going to ignore faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Because if you take out the top one and the bottom one, the whole thing falls apart. The whole thing will unravel. Think about it like this. Love without self-control. What do you get? you get reckless vulnerability and brokenness. It's why one people, some people that we know move from one dumpster fire relationship to another dumpster fire relationship because it's all about love. It's all about the gushy. It's all about the subjective. It's all about the feel good. It's all about the emotion. It's how people can come in and say, you know what? I don't love you like I used to. I'm moving on. Or I don't feel this. Or I fell out of love. They may have fallen out of that gushy, filly, soft stuff in the middle grace kind of love. They may have fallen out of that. And, or they could be caught up in that. People who, who, who have love, uh, without self control, They're they're the ones who struggle with codependency. They're the ones who need to read books like Boundaries. Think about it like that. If you have self-control, without love, you have abrasive and unattractive love. You have an unattractive life. These people, they struggle with expressing themselves. They, They struggle with being a safe place. They lack emotional awareness. They lack the ability to connect with them at a heart level because it's all hard lines. It's all objective truth. And you've got to have both of these to tie them together to make the balanced life. So when I'm talking about being spirit-filled, what am I talking about? I'm talking about a beautifully balanced life, all the way from love to self-control and all points in between. So let us today think about Am I suffering from too much love and lack of self-control? Or I have have self-control, but I have no love. Therefore, I'm hard and abrasive. So think about, kind of classify your own love. But what we're going to focus on today, I'll let you go back and listen to the other messages to catch up with that. We're going to focus on number nine, the last one. But don't let number nine fool you. It's maybe just as important as number one. Self-control. Self-discipline. Words like... No, when it's time to say no, not because you want to say no, because you need to say no. Yes, not because you want to say yes, but because yes is the right thing to say. It's the right thing. It's right and wrong. It's understanding that. And then having the ability to say yes and no. Okay, think about it like this. As Proverbs pointed out, a person without self-control is a city broken down without walls. Now, that means nothing to us in the 21st century. Nothing. What's this? Walls and all that kind of stuff. If you go from the Bronze Era to the Middle Ages, the number one line of defense for any home, any community, was not whether or not they had a sharp enough spear to get the bad guy coming in the front door. It was whether or not the city had walls thick enough, big enough, high enough to keep the bad guys on the outside of the walls. In fact, they would kick people out of the city and make them live outside the walls because it was just to protect the people inside the walls. The hardened criminals would be kicked outside the walls. You get what I'm saying? The walls were the most important thing. But a person who doesn't have self-control is like a city broken down without walls. That's why when Nehemiah went back, went back to rebuild Jerusalem, He didn't start in the heart of the city at the temple and sanctify and uh, and make right the temple. That was what Ezra does later on, what Nehemiah does. The very first thing that Nehemiah does when he was given permission from the king to go back was to rebuild the walls. So what might be the most important thing for us in our life to live a healthy, balanced life will be to rebuild our walls. Because I'm afraid we live in a day where a lot of people are living without any boundaries, any walls in their life. Living the Spirit-filled life is a self-disciplined life. It's not easy. It's not going to be easy. There's going to be always a battle in between the flesh and and the Spirit. And Brett did a great job about talking about that early on in the series. If you don't understand and you don't feel the tension of your flesh and the Spirit warring against each other, then we need to talk and we need to talk soon because that should be a very present reality battle that you're going through every single day. I wish I had a pill. I wish I had that Bible verse. I wish I had some pixie dust to blow across you and all those temptations would go away and all the struggles would go. And It's not going to happen. They're going to be there. Paul, the guy we're going to focus on today, we've looked at the Good Samaritan, we've looked at Barnabas last week. We're going to look at Paul today, but Paul himself struggled with this. In Romans chapter 7, you'll find where Paul struggles with his own walk with God. And he says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things I don't want to do, I do. Now, how many of us can identify with Paul in that? That's me, man. I mean, man, I didn't mean to say that. and I didn't mean to think that. I didn't mean to look at that person. I didn't mean to do that. I didn't mean to go there. I didn't mean to. I didn't mean to. I wanted not to. I said I wasn't going to do it again. I made a commitment I wasn't going to do it again, and I did it again. I think we can all identify with Paul, Romans chapter 7. But then you turn over just one chapter more. And by the way, he didn't put the chapters in. It's just one continuous letter from Paul to Rome. And this is what he said in the next chapter. The very next chapter, he says, we are more than conquerors. So how does he go from being like, I can't get on my footing. I can't get the self-control. I can't get the self-discipline. How do I become a conqueror in just the flip of a switch? It doesn't happen in the flip of a switch. But how does it change from chapter 7, Christianity, to chapter 8, Christianity? It's because what happens in that chapter happens 14 different times in that chapter. It's the word Spirit that shows up more times than any other chapter in the Bible. It's the most densely packaged chapter in all the Bible that refers to the power and the presence and the impact of the Holy Spirit in our life. What have we been talking about? We've been talking about being filled with the Spirit. We're talking about today, when you're filled with the Spirit, that's how we find self-control. That's how we find self-discipline. It's not mind over matter. It is God working in us. That's how we become more than a conqueror. Take your Bibles and look at 1 Corinthians. I've spent a lot of time in Corinthians over the past uh, year. been to Corinth City uh, three times in the past year in ancient Corinth. And so I've kind of had this deep dive love into studying and understanding more about the culture since i've been to the community and uh so as i peel back the layers and layers of corinth there's just so much to understand it helps me understand the context but one of the things that paul's going to use as a springboard to talk about self-control is he's going to use a metaphor Now, in the Bible, there's all kinds of metaphors. There's agrarian metaphors of harvest and seeds and rain and different things like that. But one of Paul's favorites is athleticism. And it's specifically when he's writing Corinth, writing the Corinthian believers, he kind of constantly keeps bringing it up because there's something that happened in Corinth that happened every two years. It was called the Isthamian Games. It was kind of like the first edition, if you will, of Greek and Athens and the Olympics. It was ancient Olympics, and it was happening in the city of Corinth. About 100,000 people happened every two years. Athletes would come together. They would compete in about four or five different contests. That was it. Now, I don't know how many contests we have now that are medal contests in the Olympics, but um, this was one of four critical national Greek festivals that took place was the Thamian Games. But they only had leaping, discus, running, boxing, and wrestling. That was it. That's all they had. That's all. And Paul will employ just about every one of them at some point in this few verses of Scripture that we'll read. But here's what I want you to do. As I read this, as that context lays out there, I want you to listen for the heart of Paul and how he lives out A life of self-control, a life of discipline, of self-discipline. Follow along as I read beginning in verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? Now, he states an obvious statement here does it in the form of a question. You know this, I know this, everyone knows this, that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize. So then he goes into this emphatic, inflectioned mode. He goes, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I... Do not run aimlessly. I do not box as beating the air. I, but I discipline my body and keep it under, uh, under control. Lest, after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. I hope you hear, even in the inflection of my voice, that Paul is very excited about this. He's very intent on this. And here's what we've got to understand about being spirit-filled in the self-disciplined life and how they go together is that this is not only a work that we yield ourselves to, but it's a work that God fills us for. He fills us. We yield to His Spirit. He gives us the power to become more than conquerors. Let's just answer this question, though, today. What does it look like to be Spirit-filled and self control Jot these three qualities down, if you will. One, there is... Something about them that is intentionally intense in being self-control. there's an intentionality, and it is not a light-hearted intentionality. It is an intense intentionality. Now notice that he does not use uh, the metaphor of fans sitting in the stands watching the runners on the track. He could have done that. Because there would be more runners and there would have been more people that would have identified with that because more of them in in the city of Corinth would have been a spectator than there would have been athletes. But what he does is he uses the metaphor of the runner in the race. So let us just keep that in mind that we're not called to be spectators in the stands, but we're called to be runners in the race. That alone tells us that there's movement, action, elevated heart rate, sweat coming out. You hear the intensity in that. He didn't call us to be water boys on the sideline. He didn't call us to be armchair quarterbacks on Monday morning, telling them everything that they did wrong and how they could do it better, like sometimes we tend to do when we look at the church. But in verse 24, he makes a simple statement All runners run. I know it. It sounds obvious. All runners run. They don't jog. They don't, they don't two step. They don't, they don't saunter. They don't waltz. They, they don't walk. They run. And about following Jesus, we got to understand that this takes an all out, all in commitment. This is an intentionality with intense intentionality. I don't care what word you put first, there's intensity and there's intentionality and they go together. In fact, if you think about this, in the Samian Games, every two years it would happen, but one of those years was basically dedicated to training. So basically that athlete would have about a year off to themselves, about 10 months before the Games, the athletes, the judges, and the coaches would all pull aside from normal everyday life and they would go into strict training. In that strict training, they would monitor their diet, they would monitor their exercise, they would train, they would do interval training, they would do sprints, they would do distance, they would do everything that we would do to prepare our body to run a race. But now think about that. For 10 months, they dedicate themselves to a race that may last 30 seconds. 10 months of training, 30 seconds of work. We're not going to become great incredible balanced followers of christ with just half-hearted half-baked half-committed spectator sport kind of faith it's going to take an intense intentionality about the way we live out our life following jesus is number one it's an intentional decision runners have to choose to run now i love the app that's out there called couch to 5k if you don't use it, I encourage you to use it. If you're not a runner and you want to start running, get the, get, the, get the app. I've heard so many success stories from it. But what's the deal? Is You can download the app. You can go to Rush Running buy your shoes. You can go buy some, some fancy uh, uh, Lulu's or, or whatever, whatever your running clothes are. And you can still sit on the couch drinking beer and and, and, drink, and eating your, your pizza. Uh, you know, you can do that. It doesn't make you a runner. Runners have to get off the couch and they have to go out and they have to run. So again, I know I'm stating in the obvious here, and Paul is stating the obvious. All runners run. And this is the metaphor for I have to be very intentional. I have to every morning whenever I wake up, I have to be listening. Listening for his voice. Where's he, what's he saying? I'm in his word. I'm listening to his word. What's he saying to me? Morning by morning, He awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear. What's He saying to me? i, I, I got to wake up every morning. i got to be listening. God, what are you saying? What are you calling me to? First John chapter 4, verse 6 says, We are from God, and whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. Even in John's gospel, John said, the reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. So there is this element in here. If I'm really a follower of Christ, I am leaning in and I am listening with great intentionality. I'm listening to his voice, his still small voice. Following Jesus is also intense. Again, he uses the metaphor running. I like running not I don 't like running, I do it because I need to do it. that's it. Um, I'd rather him have used uh, uh, in a Saturday afternoon, all people binge watch Netflix. I could have done that. all right? No, he his all runners run. and now I, I, when he goes on in, in this verse here, he says and only one receives the price. Now he shifts into gear. This is where the intentional intensity really comes into play. And I can't give it to you in the Greek like I, like I, like I would really love to, but you, you will get in the tone of my voice. And I even underlined it in red in my, in my, once I dove into the, into the wording and, and the, and and the syntax behind it, it says, so run that you may obtain it. When Paul turns the page here, when Paul changes his tone here, he is using every emphatic expression in the Greek language he can use. When he uses the word "treke," he's using the word for for run with great intensity in the imperative present active. Don't stop running. He says, "Whenever you run," in a clause that "whenever you run," that you're going to do it with a purpose, and that purpose is what to get the prize. And that last word there in the in, in the Greek language is this word "lambano," which means to 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 receive something. But he puts the, the another word onto it. Lambano or labante, and in that he said not only do i want you to receive it i want you to take it i want you to grab it i want you to run through the finish line and grab the medal when you go by i want you to run through and get the prize you see the determination you see the intensity in that one of my favorite movies is a all right, we call it a classic movie now. Maybe, maybe it's a little overdrawn to call it classic, but it's Dead Poets Society. How many of y'all have seen Dead Poets Society? All right. So you know the phrase in there, probably the most popular phrase, certainly made it popular from that day forward. Um, and he's, he's with these students and they're out in the hallway and he gets them up close to these photos of all the founders and all the past graduates of the school. And he takes them up next to the photos. He tells them to listen closely, listen, listen, listen closely. What do, you, what do you hear? What do you hear? And he starts whispering into their ears, Carpe carpe diem, seize the day, seize the day. When he tells them that, he's challenging these students to get out and make a difference in this world with intentional intensity about the way you live out your life. I believe this is Paul's carpe diem statement. I believe this is Paul saying, listen, don't just saunter, don't just walk, don't just waltz, don't just uh, skip. Don't, no, run with great intensity. What has God called you to? Did he give you a wife? Did he give you a husband? Are you pursuing them with intentional intensity? Not a one-off, not a every now and then, but are you doing it with intentional intensity? What kind of job has God given you, called you to, equipped you to do? Are you doing that? Listen, the followers of Christ ought to be the best workers in any business in this land. They ought to be the best teachers in any schoolhouse in this land. They ought to be the best at it because we do whatever we do with intentional intensity because we are following Christ even as we live out our life. Dallas Willard tells the story in, of... um of a man who struggled with the fruits of the Spirit, particularly patience and kindness with his kids. Um, He was very successful on the job. He would come home full of stress and anxiety and offload all of his stress and anxiety onto the family. He didn't do it intentionally. He didn't do it because he wanted to. It was just that I finally let down and somebody spills something at the table. Something doesn't happen according to his plans and he just loses it. He realized under conviction every time, oh, I wish I wouldn't do that. I wish I wouldn't do that. So he and his wife developed a plan. Now, again, he was very wealthy. He, he had done pretty well. Obviously, he'd done well because he's good at what he does, but he also done well, has done well because he's frugal, okay? He saved what he got. And so his wife came up with a plan that every time you lose your temper, you're going to write a $5,000 check to the charity of my choice, wake up. So he agreed reluctantly, but he agreed. That was the plan. And so there was a day he comes home, he loses it. And what does he have to do? She just immediately said, write that $5,000 check to XYZ charity. And so that's what he does. Regrettably, Sorry, won't do it again, blah, 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 goes right on. And a few weeks later, he does it again, and then, and then he does it again. $25,000 later, he finally develops patience and kindness with the kids. <laughs> Intense intentionality. How serious are you going to be about being spirit-filled? Paul said, if you're going to go for it, don't. Walk across the line, run across the line, claim the prize on the other side of the line. Get serious about it if you're gonna do it. But there's also there's an internal discipline. There's internally disciplined self whenever you're spirit filled and they're under self control. The way I just explained this one story of this one man, there was an external motivating element to him, and that was $5,000 every time he blew his top. That's an external motivation, okay? Internally, it was affected, tied together, and sometimes it's hard to separate them out, but every time he has to write a check for $5,000, it begins to add up, right? So externally, he saw his bank account going down, and he had to stop it somehow, some way. But when I say there's an internal discipline This is where it's not an external motivator. It's an internal motivator. There's something inside of Paul. There's something inside of him that's unique. It's more than just him willing it. It's more than him just cognitive choosing it. It's actually something inside of him that's helping him do this. That's why he goes on after he gives this scenario of a runner and race and all the runners run one gets the prize. Then he goes right into his exhortation. Every athlete exercises self control every athlete it's where we get our english word agon agony from is it's the greek word agon and so every agonizing athlete exercises self control now, what makes this word self-control so unique in our language that we don't fully get it as we translate it into English is there's a little preposition attached to the front end of this word, and it's the Greek word in, which means in. Literally, that's how I pronounce it. Transliterate it. In means in. So Inside. There's an inside element that's inside of Paul that enables him to say, I am not going to do this. I am not going to feel this way. I'm not going to pursue this. I am not going to do this. There's an internal motivation. And this word self-control, here's a definition for you. Literally, it means this, to keep one's emotions, impulses, or desires under control. Whoa, 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 whoa. Desires? You mean I... I can literally curtail my desires. I can understand that I won't choose to act out in lust, act out in anger. I, I can I can see me choosing willfully to run the other direction, but the desire is still there. A spirit-filled, spirit-controlled person is a person who has something inside of them, that something being the Holy Spirit, that is in them, that is enabling them to actually alter their desires, alter their impulses, change their emotions. That's the level of self-control. So it's not just something externally changing on the outside. And this is really hard in our culture. In our entitled, self-absorbed, narcissistic, materialistic, hedonistic ways of our culture that says, hey, if it feels good, do it, go for it. If you want to do it, you're a free person, you're an adult, you make your own choices, you do it. That kind of mentality is what makes up America. And that's not the mentality that Paul has here. This self-control is an internal self-control where your decisions actually start getting changed. Another time, just to kind of do a, do a parallel, another time that Paul uses this same phrase is whenever uh, Luke is recording his encounter with Felix, the governor of Israel, Roman governor in Caesarea, overseeing the Roman region, Roman-controlled Israel at this time, and he's under house arrest, and Felix and his wife come to see him. And notice the content of Paul's message. Acts 24, verse 23 and 4, it says this, After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he went for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Now, he could have stopped there, and I would have been all good. Okay, faith in Jesus Christ, you need Jesus, I need Jesus. Drusilla, you need Jesus. Felix needs Jesus, also, I'll come to Jesus, right? But he doesn't. He goes on and he reasoned with him about righteousness and about self-control and about judgment. Wow. You mean self-control ought to be a part of our gospel conversations? You mean self-control and actually that I can't call my own shots is actually a part of the conversation about becoming a follower of Christ to a person like Felix? I mean, come on. Now, let Felix, he's the governor of Rome. I mean, he's the governor of the area. He can do whatever he wants. Rome is Rome. And Rome, you do in Rome what Rome does. And that's just hedonistic, narcissistic Western lifestyle. But Paul says, no, to follow Jesus involves self-control. What did Felix do with this message? Look at the next words. Felix was alarmed, and the story he says he got up and he walked away and he left Paul imprisoned. I wonder what was the tipping point that caused Felix to get up and walk away and not follow? Was it whenever he called him to a new sense of direction and ownership and control of his impulses and his desires and his emotions? Socrates considered self control as the cardinal virtue. And again, in our culture, we don't do well with this concept. Because we, we, we say, let your inside feelings reign. Follow your heart. How did that do with Adam and Eve? It left billions of people dead in the wake of their following their own heart. You know, we follow food, spending, emotions, mood swings, sexuality. Sorry, i got to go here for just a second because if we don't talk about it, who's going to talk about it and give some semblance of truth? But We live in a sexually charged culture. Sexuality and self-control don't fit in the same conversations nine times out of ten. We live in a day where I'm hearing more and more and more and more and more of women who have been sexually hurt, abused, taken advantage of, And you're hearing it too, Me Too movement, Church Too movement. These abuses are taking places in homes, safe places, with family members and aunts and uncles or whatever, with coaches and teachers and in the church. Why? How? How did we get here? We're living in a culture where the sexual boundaries are gone. We're living in culture, we think it's okay, and you should follow your instincts and go with your emotions and go with your impulses like we're animals. I'm sorry, same sex attraction? It's unsustainable. It's unbiblical right, wrong, or indifferent, socially acceptable or not. I look at it I go, this is not what the Bible ordered and put it in place. Let's go back. Pornography, it's not hurting anybody. It's just me and the screen, me and a bunch of pixels. Nobody's being hurt, right? That's what we think. It's our culture that we're living in. We're not thinking about the ripples it's going to have generations from now. The mind is being reshaped, neurologists tell us, because of us looking at pornography, because we've accepted it as norm, because we have this culture of sexual promiscuity. I was talking to a young single man just yesterday. We were talking about the struggles and the temptations of being pulled in this direction and pulled in that direction. And when I get married, get married, then I won't have that desire anymore because I'll have my mate. And I said, you know, you can put a ring on the outside, but it doesn't fix the lust on the inside. You'll be married and you'll still lost. You'll still struggle with that. It'll still be a very present danger. T.C. Ryan, you want to read a book, Ashamed No More?, He tells the story of him struggling for 40 years with compulsive sexual behaviors. 40 years. Couldn't get past it. Ended in shame every time. Couldn't get past it. Finally found victory in walking in the Spirit. But did he find victory from no longer having that attraction to that wrong form of sexuality? No, 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 no. The attraction was still there. The pull, the gravitational pull was still there. But the victory was his. He says, if I've learned anything about God and the ways of living in the Spirit, it is that finding him isn't in avoiding the struggle. It's in finding him in the struggle. Or better, being found by him in the struggle. And the struggle is where God is. There is an internal discipline of a person who is self-controlled by the Spirit of God. There is an intentional intensity about them. But number three, there's a move with purpose. They move with purpose. Stephen Covey said it like this, "...the undisciplined are slaves to moods and appetites and passions." Hear that. If you are an undisciplined person, you will literally chase whatever mood, whatever appetite, whatever passion is before you. There's a life altering element that when the Spirit of God comes and resides inside of us, gives us inter- internal strength to be able to say no to walk away from. Why do we do this? Because there's something out there on the other side that's better. Why did I say our definition of manhood is to reject passivity, accept responsibility to lead courageously and anticipate a greater reward is because the anticipating is the greater reward is that God's got something better out there. He's got a better plan. He's got a better method. And notice in verse 25, when he talks about this, they do it, they run, these athletes run for a perishable, but we're doing it for an imperishable. We got something bigger and better and better and yeah, awesome. We're going for something. And listen, I know we don't think about a crown being that, that glamorous, that, that, that grandiose of something that, that, that would entice you. But you got to realize this is first century Corinth where they had Greek gods like Neptune and Pan and Zeus who literally wore crowns of laurels around their heads and wreaths around their head. Tiberius wore a laurel uh, during thunderstorms to protect. The Spartans put on a crown going into battle. Women would wear a crown on their wedding day. It was a sign of beauty and strength and honor and, and, and deity and fashion. So what he's saying is, that, listen, this world's pursuing things that are perishable, but we got something that is imperishable, a crown that is imperishable. So then, don't miss this, verse 26. If Paul wasn't personal enough, because he's all been they and them, they and them, they and them. Notice what he does in verse 26. He gets very personal. He goes from talking about they and them to I and my. He says, I, so I. What difference does it make? So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body. I keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself too personal pronouns back to back. I myself, emphatic, could, should be disqualified. Paul talked about a life of purpose. I'm going to live it with a purpose. I'm going to live it with intentionality. I've got an interior strength that's going to enable me. Aimless living leads to an aimless life. I don't want that. I want to move towards purpose. What does that mean for me and you and all of us? It means saying no, even when it hurts. Saying no, when it hurts. If you look at verse 27, this first phrase is actually the phrase that is like a magnet for the past eight years that's drawn me back. Maybe nine years it has been drawing me back again and again and again. It's one of my favorite verses, one of my favorite phrases in all the Bible. But I discipline my body and I keep it under control. The English just doesn't capture it. I discipline my body and I keep it under control. I mean, you get it, but it doesn't get it because the word discipline there is actually the word to punch somebody in the eye. Literally. One lexicon said that is actually to give somebody a black eye. So Paul said, I black eye my body. I beat my body. That's exactly what the NIV translates it as. He says, I strike, I bruise a blow to my body and make it my slave. I beat my body. When's the last time you worked out and you saw blood coming from your body? I've got scars on my shins from missing on box jumps. I've had my hands torn from, from what I, what I like to sweat at. Um, I was with Mike Keller out on slaughter Pin one day. Uh, he took me out. I don't, I don't ride the trails. I will never ride the trails again, as far as I'm concerned. I was with Keller and he was taking off and I'm like on this borrowed bike and I'm just like, I was like, send me back to CrossFit. You know, for the next hour, I'm like praying and my whole body is tense when I got off riding on these edges. And those of you who do that, more power to you. But I know the, the mistake and the hitting the ground and the, my body does not give like it used to give. And so it's going to be blood. You've heard of runners who will run and they'll, they'll talk about the runner's high. Well, you don't hit the runner's high till you hit the wall. You notice that if the high came first, it may get you through the wall, but the wall comes first and the high is on the other side. So notice what Paul says where I'm going to be so committed to this living a life of self-discipline and self-control that I will beat bruise my body and make it my slave. Saying no, even when it hurts. Keep your yes on the prize. Keep your yes. Yes, God. That's the prize. I'm going for it. John Maxwell said it well. He said, Avoid short-term failures. To avoid short-term failures is to keep a long-term mindset. Keep your eyes on the big picture. What does Paul say at the last part? He it's kind of he, it's he's kind of bearing his soul. He said, Lest after preaching to others. I myself should be disqualified. I don't want to live my life only to be one failure after another failure after another failure to be disqualified. And for some of you right now, you are living under this cloud of shame. Listen, that's of Satan. The Spirit convicts us and points at an area of our life that needs to change. Listen to that voice. Get out from the cloud of shame and start running the race. Allow the Spirit of God to fill you and free you so that you can run the race. So you can exercise self-discipline. I know it sounds really Polly Annie for me to stand up here and say, live the Spirit-filled life. Now go out the door and live in this world that's so hard. So somebody was um, was sharing with John Stott a story that's recorded in his book, Radical Disciples. And it, it, the story goes like this, that somebody asked me to write and write like Shakespeare. He said, to write like Shakespeare? To go write Hamlet? To, 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 to go write plays? There's no way. He said, unless the genius of Shakespeare... Would come and live inside of me, then I could set and write like Shakespeare. And he said, To live like Jesus? To live with love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self control? To live like Jesus? There's no way. Unless the Spirit of Jesus were to come and live inside of me, then, then I could live like Jesus. So the key to everyone in this room, nobody excluded from the top to the bottom, is is the Spirit of God inside of you. Are you a child of God? Let's start there. If if you're not, right now, give yourself to Just say, Jesus, I need you. I want you. I want your Spirit in me. I want to be empowered by you. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. I'm going to give myself to you, Jesus. Just tell me in your own prayer. Maybe you're a believer here today and you say, man, I'm living under that cloud of shame and guilt and regret and I don't know what it's going to take to get me out. In this moment of reflection, this is the most important time of the day, I promise you this, most important next five minutes of your life will be right here. You listening to the Spirit of God and responding and saying, God, I have not been letting you steer my life in this area, I need your spirit to fill me and to steer, control my life in this area. Give it to him. Would you bow your heads with me? Father God, Spirit of the living God, Jesus, we call on you today. Three in one, God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, we call on you today. You did everything from creating us and making us in your image to breathing your life into us to when we failed and we became about our own senses and desires and whims and wishes, that you then came and rescued us in your Son Jesus. And then you breathed into us yet again, your spirit. And your spirit has been in us if we're a child of God. And Lord, I would pray today that we would know what it's like to live the self-controlled life, not because we mind over matter, white knuckle it, Because of your spirit is fully alive in us. We are filled. We are intoxicated. We are consumed by your spirit. Oh, God, make us oh so aware of your spirit today. Lord, if there's a person in this room that doesn't know you, doesn't know you, Jesus. Lord, help them today in faith to say, yes, Jesus, I'm yours. I'm giving myself to you. Lord, if there's a follower in this room today who's struggling. Under shame, under regret, feeling guilty for lack of patience and kindness, guilty for lack of gentleness and faithfulness. Lord, deal with them. Help them to find peace and reconciliation with you now. Father, this is your time. We are your people. Do your work in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand and worship with us, please.